Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, the now Dr. CJ Rose. Welcome, CJ. Lisa, it's well, a pleasure Rose. to be with you. No, call me CJ, but uh, good to be with you again. Good to have you. And we're uh, going to talk about something that um, I'm sure a lot of Black preachers will be scrambling uh, to wrestle with this <laughs> this weekend. Right. Um, Carlton Pearson and his new movie comes Sunday on Netflix. Um, so this is sure to be something that will be interesting to see how uh, it affects uh, people uh, that are in church and what they think about it and how they wrestle with it. Um, for those who don't know who you are, before we get into that, um, give them just a little bit of background. Sure. Well, I am a native of Hazelhurst, Mississippi. I now reside in Jackson, where I pastor Mount Helm Baptist Church, which is the oldest historically black congregation in Jackson. For those who are familiar with the Church of Christ Holiness USA and the Church of God in Christ, our church was the Baptist church where a lot of that uh, began. I also teach down at Alcorn State University and uh, you referenced the uh, Dr. Rhodes piece. I'm a graduate of Duke University Divinity School, received my MDiv uh, from there in 2009 and just received my doctor of ministry from Wesley Biblical Seminary uh, this uh, year, in fact, last month. So uh, very excited to again, be with you, Lisa and your audience. Well, congratulations on uh, completing your dissertation and well, defending your dissertation and um, getting your D-men. Um, so today, like I said, we're going to talk about Carlton Pearson. I was first introduced to Carlton Pearson as a girl, my dad, before he uh, became a, a, a senior pastor. He was on staff at a, 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 a big uh, Pentecostal church here in the city. And we, we during that time, uh, the the bishop we served under Bishop uh, the late Lawrence Callahan had Carlton Pearson I believe two or three times so I knew him 
from a little girl. I've seen him preach, um, a dynamic speaker, um, and at the time was one of the most popular Black Pentecostal preachers of that time with Azusa Street. Um, and so I knew, I've known of uh, Bishop Pearson. Um, I met him when I was a little girl um, for a, a, a large portion of my life, followed his life and knew about those things. So uh, I think it's interesting that he has a Netflix movie uh, dropping <laughs> this weekend um, of, of all people now that he is considered a heretic um, by, by many. Um, you had your own experience with uh, Bishop Pearson. Tell us, tell us about that. Sure. Well, much like you, I had some interactions with his work um, at the time, back in early 2000s. He was very, very popular. And uh, this is prior to, I should say, uh, early to mid-90s is when he was really, really big. Most of the major gospel artists and televangelists from the African-American tradition that we see today, like T.D. Jakes, like Don McClurkin, they all really got their start by being presented at the Azusa conference that he hosted every year in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I would watch some of those videos and also listen to the CDs. And I mean, he was a dynamic singer, is a dynamic singer. Uh, and a lot of those great gospel artists that came uh, to the forefront of the last uh, 10 to 20 years have really come through uh, through his, his lineage, if you will. And so because I was so enamored, if you will, with, with what he did, he, he basically talked about making Pentecostalism beautiful and pretty. And so he took classical Pentecostalism and then brought it to the big stage, put some lights and nice color and nice sound and, and, and whatnot to it. And so it was very powerful presentation. But by the time I got to Duke Divinity School, he had gone through this profound transition and was very open about it. And it was starting to make his rounds. And so in 2007, I actually went to Tulsa, uh, asked to go to interview him. I got an opportunity to chat with him personally. He said, come on out. So about two or three days, I spent some time out in Tulsa and got a chance to literally meet him in person. Let me back up and say that when I first spoke to him on the phone, it was it was a very we uh, weird experience. Uh, my pastor friends who were talking to me about him before I went, they were like, man, get him saved, Doc, get him saved. Well, I called him and uh, he chats with me and he was in always the same Carlton Pearson, the sound, the flavor It's like, Hello, God, man of God, how are you? And all that stuff. And then he began to prophesy on the phone. <laughs> or some would say prophesy, but it was very powerful. So I'm, I'm leaving Durham uh, a few weeks later, sort of like, this is weird. He's, he's in many ways left classical Pentecostalism, but still looks and sounds like the classical Pentecostal he was. And yet by the time I got to, to Tulsa, he, of course, was um, preaching the uh, gospel of inclusion. He lost his church. Uh, when I got a chance to see him in action, he was doing an evening service at a local Episcopal church. Uh, he had gone from 5,000 folks to maybe 2, uh, 200 folks, I should say, um, and was very bold in the proclamation of this new gospel of inclusion. 
And um, we could talk about some of the details about the church service, but one of the things that was really, really powerful later when we sat in his office um, uh, later that evening, he talked about his personal trials and how a lot of the people that he essentially helped to raise up to the national status they received. And for some who were great friends who he had covered up and helped as they went through their trials and controversies had basically abandoned him. And in their place, a lot of the quote unquote folks that Pentecostal said were going to hell had embraced him. And that really pushed him even further into preaching the gospel of inclusion because he's, he understood in his estimation that these non-saved, non-sanctified folk were more Christ-like than the people that, uh, that he loved for so many years. And uh, lastly, I wanted to go do some research at Oral Roberts University. And he said, don't tell them that you met with me. Just go there because if you tell them you met with me, they're going to probably not allow you to come on campus. But he told them how much he still loved Oral Roberts and the Roberts family. So it was just a very interesting dynamic. And so there's a lot of fluid intersecting pieces to the Pearson story that I suppose uh, will be borne out in, in this movie that's coming out today. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, recently, uh, I, well, I was just yesterday in um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I was um, doing a keynote for a pastors and leaders uh, event there. And I, one of my keynotes was called Pulling Them Out or Pushing Them In from June. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and when he talks about pulling them out of the fire. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, I, I reference um, Carlton Pearson in that um, in that lecture because I was saying that like you, like we talked about before, when he did bring these um, things that he was thinking about to uh, his friends that were happened to be major preachers, they kind of shunned him and put him on blast right. versus um, necessarily engaging him. And I, I wonder sometimes do when people are wrestling with doubts or different thoughts, are we there to pull them out or does our behavior when we're unloving and unmerciful further push them in? Yeah. Um, and so that's just interesting to think about and wrestle through. And then I, I know some people who, who, who were there during that time and who, who, have were some bishops were, that were there, but say, well, he was his mind was already made up. It wasn't anything we could do. So you know, there's you know different thoughts on Absolutely. that. Um, well, one of the things too, going back to Oral Roberts, one of the things he shared with me in 2007 was that as he was initially wrestling with these questions, he he came to Oral and, and others in in the city of Tulsa to sort of work through this and one of the pieces to his ultimate gospel of inclusion is actually, if you will, the word of faith doctrine. Because around that time in the, in the 90s, in Tulsa, Tulsa was kind of the you know, ground zero for word of faith doctrine. You know, Kenneth Hagin there and Oral Roberts in some ways was sort of uh, in that context. And he said to me, we were saying, don't say that you are sick say that you're healed. Don't say that you are poor. Say that you're rich by faith. So Pearson said the logical conclusion to that is 
don't say that you are unsaved. Say that you're saved. Mm. If we're proclaiming by faith that we are neither sick nor poor, then why does that not extend itself to salvation? And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not going to, I probably will get in trouble for saying this. The gospel of inclusion sort of emerges out of his wrestling, not just with the concept of hell, but certain teachings in the Word of Faith movement, right? That said, don't look at your literal experience. Proclaim by faith that God has already done something. Claim it by faith. So he said, if Jesus has already done all of this on the cross, it's the finished work. And we say by the cross, we have received healing and received wealth and prosperity. Then why would God not extend salvation, which is more important than bodily healing or material blessing? And as he was wrestling with that, some of the folks in the crew were like, no, 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 no. You're taking this out of context. But because he couldn't really defend why salvation was distinct from healing and prosperity, it allowed him to, to really press further and further into wrestling with this and ultimately getting to the position he is now, which says to me, you know, you talked about pushing and pulling. Pearson is a brilliant man. I, I don't think there's any doubt that, that he was brilliant then is brilliant now. And the problem was, at least in the way I understood his story, you didn't have other brilliant people who could really wrestle with him about where he was. And by the time this starts to be a republic, people are denouncing him publicly. And then they're doing, you know, there's the uh, Word Network uh, broadcast where they basically brought him on stage to, to combat him. By that time, he's like, no one can tell me why I'm wrong. And I think had there been more um, sit downs and, 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 you know, closed door meetings and, you know, prayer meetings early on, by his own admission, he may have gone a different direction. Well, that's at least what he said to me. Now, maybe he, you know, had already gone down, down that road and there was no coming back. But he essentially said that the lack of intellectual honesty about the doctrine of the Word of Faith movement at the time and the emotional trauma he experienced by being castigated by so many people who he had covered and prayed for through their crises really said, you know what, I must be going in the right direction. So he kind of had a, a martyr's syndrome by that time. They're beating me up, they're tearing me down, and guess what? The gays and the lesbians and the word of that, uh, the uh, uh, new thought, new age movement, these folks who have been embracing me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all the way in over there and really leave behind this context without leaving behind the content of who, who I am. He was basically still, in, in many ways, calls himself a Pentecostal who just so happens to be in a different different space. I don't see how he can hold those different things together uh, in his mind because it's very clear that his classical Pentecostal Church of God in Christ upbringing and doctrine is in clear contra contradiction and conflict with where he is today. But it's nothing for him to go into tongues and all kinds of stuff and talk about praying for folks and laying hands. And I'm just like, this is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is very interesting because um, I think for many who've encountered him, a lot of people, folks in the gospel music industry, he's had great influence on them and he still has. He's counselors and they co many confide in him. Um, because 
of different things, his the the ways in which he talks about love. And it's it's one of those things where I think one of the things we don't think about when we're thinking about this subject and when we're trying to defend the faith is the fact that sometimes the people that are influencers, like gospel music artists, and you could see on social media, some gospel music artists are really pushing hard for people to watch this film uh, because they really have embraced privately, not publicly, his message. And I think one of the things in which people don't realize is that sometimes when you're on the scene or on these platforms, you see so much uh, with the different personalities, the different things that happen <laughs> behind behind the scene. Sure. And it makes just like what Carson Pierce said, he covered people, he knew different things that were going on, the dirt. And so he expected that same kind of grace. And when you don't find that, it pushes you in a different direction. And I I believe that's why sometimes even our gospel music artists are, are more willing to accept his beliefs because they they know that the people who are telling them otherwise aren't honest about some of the things that are that are going on. Right. Well, then, too, the irony is that uh, per his conversation, this is all per my interview with them. So, you know, of course, there are different sides to every story. There were pastors, preachers, bishops, apostles, right, who agreed with him in private. And he said, the reason why they're pulling me down is not because they disagree with where I stand, is they're afraid of losing their churches. And so he kind of saw that as being morally incongruent. You, you have this belief, you're preaching something different in the pulpit because you want to maintain your congregation size. And again, he lost all of this because he felt it was the right way. And, um, and, and so it made him sort of look at different people differently. Um, but, but to your point too, about gospel artists and, and, and different folk who, who've been attracted to his doctrine, even if they don't fully embrace it. And this is a conversation that many of us won't, won't have, is that there's so much brokenness in a lot of our churches, especially in the Pentecostal community with sexual abuse and assault and things like that. And so what they see in Pearson, I think, is this loving father figure who's saying, we've got to do right. And these persons who are wrestling with all kinds of demons and struggles and whatnot um, find solace uh, in, in, in what he's teaching. And in some ways, you know, and let me then go on the record and say, I don't agree with this gospel of inclusion. Let me make sure I, I state that. At the same time, I think he becomes sort of a mirror for the church to make us, to force us reflect more deeply on orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? We claim to believe stuff that we don't live out or we're not living things that are congruent with what we say we, we believe or how many folks say they believe something they don't believe, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, because it is it is expedient to say, you know, whatever, just because if I don't, then I won't get invited to the big conferences and whatnot. And I think he really exposes a lot of that. What, what is necessary then are for people who say we understand the compassion, we understand the conflicts. But here's a better way of arguing what the Bible and historic Christianity have taught regarding those who will reject the gospel. What's, what's the state, the eternal state or 
whatever you know, whatever the particular doctrine, uh, doctrinal accent is, there is very clear that judgment will come. The Apostles' Creed says that he will come again. Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So there is some space for judgment, uh, not judgmentalism, of course. And we've got to reckon with that in ways that don't come off as just, you know, the bully pulpit, thumbing the Bible, fire and brimstone preaching. We've got to tell both uh, that Jesus is full of grace and truth, right? There's a truth side and a grace side. And I think the grace message in contemporary America has been the overcorrection to the judgment and the truth doctrine, if you will, that so many of us have preached the evangelical and Pentecostal pulpits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so many layers, I think, to, to Pearson. Um, is there anything else you want to share about um, your, your talking with him? Well, uh, again, I think the, the weird thing about him is for me at that time, meeting someone who was classified as a heretic, it was very interesting about what heresy looks like. Because he was such a down-to-earth, he was probably one of the most down-to-earth uh, big preachers that I'd ever met. I uh, got a chance to go over to his home, uh, meet his wife, his family. He made sweet potato pies. Come on, get some of the sweet potato pie, boy. <laughs> it was just, I mean, so it was just weird to, you know, to meet somebody who you really kind of thought was like, this is the famous Carlton Pearson. And very down-to-earth, very hospitable. He drove me around Tulsa. He invited me to different places. Uh, they had some big Tulsa event where all these different people were getting together for maybe a kind of a, a Memorial Day weekend or something like that. And he's up singing, uh, this land is my land. This land is your land. And then he's embracing Native peoples and he's embracing all. And it's in his here Here's what I basically want to say in summary about all of that. I do not agree with where he landed. But there's something about his hospitality, his neighbor love, that really puts a lot of us to shame. We claim that particularly of us are shaped in part by Pentecostalism or evangelicalism, the, the ways in which he was able to embrace all kinds of quote unquote have nots and broken people says there must be a hole in the way that we're we're demonstrating our gospel when we're only embracing folk that look and sound like us. And, and so I think it, 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 it makes us, it forces us, you know, especially as we've been going through all the tumult after the MLK 50 conference and all these people saying that those of us who are talking about justice issues aren't preaching the gospel. I would say when you hear that, no wonder you see people flocking to Pearson. Uh, so we've got to be able to hold that grace and truth message together, orthodoxy and orthopraxy together, compassion and conviction together. And demonstrate that the true gospel is a gospel that that though it believes in judgment and justice, also believes in compassion. And I think that's the best apologetic for our side. And I hope and pray that many of us won't just, you know, castigate Pearson as a heretic, but that we'll demonstrate why the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we believe it biblically, theologically, historically, is the way, the truth, and the life. And um, so hopefully those who will watch the movie and those who won't uh, will begin to wrestle in our churches and our conventions and congregations, uh, broadly speaking, what does it mean for us to bear witness to this gospel in a world that's desperately looking for love and compassion? 
I think it's important that you noted that because one thing that I've been seeing a lot of, uh, and I think social media kind of pushes this uh, when we talk about uh, going back to the pushing and pulling out. Right. When we see people that we disagree with, and then our first response is to write a blog, <laughs> right. do a Facebook Live, um, and you have their phone number. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, it really is an indictment on us because that is, if if we are to learn a lesson from uh, Pearson in the story and how he was further pushed away because the people that had his number mm. were in relationship with him, went to the press before they went to him. Wow. Um, and maybe we're not going to the press, but we're going to, we're not going to media. We're not going to CNN. We're not going to Fox, but we're going straight to social media. We have access to people to even give them, you know, they may be too far gone. They may be, you know, out there. There's no pulling, but give people the courtesy and the respect. Just like if you were off, you would probably want someone to come to you versus you finding out when you log on to social media. Yeah. And so I think that's something we can pull from this because I see a lot of unhealthy ways we're engaging people on social media. And I wonder if the world looks at us, do they see these people are just at each other's throats? I would rather go to somebody like a people may say, I may rather go to somebody like a Pearson because he's coming at me in a loving, kind way and treating me like a person mm-hmm. versus you're telling me this is the theological right way. I'm going to lay out all the tenets of the faith. But if I get, if I'm off on something, if I'm wrestling with something, or if I slip up and say the wrong thing, you're going to blast me immediately. Right. No, I think that's a brilliant point. And, and the social media context you just mentioned is, uh, is, is, is both a good thing and a bad thing because, as, you're, as you noted, there's this call-out culture which I think is often more so mediated by our need to be liked and approved. So we go straight to a Facebook live or a tweet or whatever, because ultimately we want people to like it and reshare it and then move us up in, in notoriety. Right. So, so it's sort of disingenuous as opposed to saying, Hey, let me reach out. And again, I want to press by the time I met Pearson in 2007, he, one of the things he said to me over and over again, had these people who were my friends who I, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, I ain't gonna go into all the details. He just, he just kind of like called folks out and said, well, they needed $10,000. I gave it to them when they were going through a sex scandal. I came in and counseled the, you know, he's naming all this stuff and saying, and the first thing they do is they go to the press. They write stuff and say, Carlton Pearson is a heretic. When just a few days before they told me they agree with me, you know, and he's just, and, and so like, <laughs> you know, he's just like, he's just thrown by that. And yet, here's the thing about Pearson that's that's ironic. Through all of that, he has maintained a loving, compassionate disposition. He's he's basically said, if they come and, and we'll talk to uh, talk to each other, we'll work through things. But and so it's weird. And so this is this, this is see, watch this. This is the irony that it it takes, if you will, a heretic to show us what it means to be Christ-like. Wow. I mean that. So so it, it forces us. I think those of us who say we believe in orthodoxy 
Uh, you know, you've seen this stuff going out, the way they're tearing, you know, Russell Moore and, and David Platt for even bringing up race and racism as gospel issues. And you're just sitting there thinking, well, no wonder there's a Pearson out there who's being celebrated because you've got some black evangelical growing up in a white evangelical church, going to a white evangelical school, hearing white evangelicals say that white evangelicals shouldn't talk about race. And they hear Pearson talk about what he's talking about. and say, you know what? I need to listen to what this cat's talking about. So we gotta, we've got to understand that that to hold to the truth doesn't mean that we don't deal with the horrors and the brutalities and the oppressions that have come with those who claim to hold the truth. That there have been orthodox people who have held slaves, that have raped women, that have lynched men. Let's deal with that. And if we deal with it honestly and at the same time say that God will ultimately uh, restore things and provide justice and provide a space for those who reject his grace to, to uh, in the words of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, live in agony about the love they protest, right? You know, for the Orthodox tradition, hell isn't just some fire and brimstone place. It is that the glory of God in Christ, the, the brilliance of his glory will be something that those who love him will embrace and those who did not embrace him will be in the valley of gnashing of teeth and weeping because they'll say, this is the love that we rejected. And it's just like, you know, it may, may not be the best analogy, but it's like that guy that finally comes to his senses about the good girl that he cheated on 20 times. And now she's gone on and she's married someone, has kids. And he's like, man, I really screwed that up. I mean, there is that reality that those who reject the grace of God will experience this sense of this. But at the same time, as we spend time, you know, trying to convince the world of the veracity of the gospel, we can't do it with our lips only. We've got to do it with our lives. And I think if we, in the words of Dr. Jerry Young, allow our audio and video to match, that will be a better presentation of the gospel than just going to Twitter wars and Facebook lives to tear down someone like Colton Pearson. Mm -hmm. That's that's definitely very helpful. Something that you you touched on earlier that I think is important uh, for for our audience, um, because many of our many people in our audience are are black Pentecostals and black people that may be in churches that lean more word of faith. They they may because something I'm noticing is even some word of faith preachers uh, tear down the prosperity gospel. They'll start talking about the horrors of the prosperity gospel. And then <laughs> once they get to the end, it's just like, well, that was kind of prosperity gospel-ish. <laughs> um, <laughs> so many people are sitting up under that kind of teaching. And as you said, um, Carlton Pearson said, like the logical conclusion for him for the word of faith teaching uh, was inclusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, how do we challenge folks in that context to preachers in that context or people that are in that context that are, you know, claiming healing and won't say they're sick and all of those things, if they're wrestling with that, because it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's already off. So, right. then, you know, this, you're adding this component to it and then you're like, oh, um, I guess I can go with that. Um, how do we challenge folks there? Yeah, I think one of the first things we have to do is to distinguish 
say classical Pentecostalism, from neo-Pentecostalism, from word of faith, from, you know, whatever post-word of faith groups are out there. Um, because, because that's one of the first errors people make, especially non-Pentecostals who want to say uh, that the prosperity gospel thing is a Pentecostal thing. There are many Pentecostals who reject that wholesale. And, and so we need to be, be aware of that. But for those who have grown up in a kind of word of faith kind of context, which is the kind of quote unquote name it and claim it, you know, um, um, words have power, uh, declaration, theology, et cetera. I, I would say is, is, you know, to give a shameless plug, I think they need to uh, engage with your work, to be honest with you, because th there is a, and I say this in a generic sense, this is not about everyone, but there's a lack of deep intellectual inquiry sometimes because it's all about we say it and if anyone comes against it they're of the devil as opposed to saying let's wrestle with this let's let's look at has this really uh made sense in the in the long run um one of the things that you hear people uh, ter uh being terrorized by is the almost ponzi scheme pyramid scheme element that's in some of those churches where you're sewing up into the man of God. And it's supposed to be like Reaganomics, trickle down, blessing. <laughs> you sow into the man of God and God's going to bless you for it. And then folks saying, I still got evicted out of the house. I still have foreclosure. I walked around the house eight times. I got the house. Then I lost the house. So, you know, and so th there has to be a reckoning with the ways in which that theology has been very abusive. And at the same time, as you point out, if there are persons who say we're going to hold this theology with integrity, you've got to ask, well, can you really deny the claim that Pearson made that that if you're claiming these things that are supposed to be invisible realities in real consequence, then how does that not apply to salvation? Why can't Snoop Dogg say I'm, I'm saved and going to heaven? That's why I made a gospel record. You know, why can't that be the case? And they have to, you know, uh, really interrogate that. And what I would suggest, uh, as we, we've been seeing, is that some of the Word of Faith preachers are coming to terms with the ways in which that has been abusive. And, you know, we just saw, for instance, uh, Benny Hinn talk about how he's been in error for a very long time. So there needs to be some, some, some challenge in that, uh, challenge in the way that we have really cheapened I think the Pentecostal experience by making it all about the dance, the shout and the sewing. There mm -hmm. was some about holiness of life and living that classical Pentecostals had. And even though some would argue they did it in the wrong ways, there was still something about character, moral formation that were necessary so that they would say, yes, God wants you to be blessed and whole, but God also wants you to eat right. You know, God also wants you to be a good steward of your resources. God wants you to love your wife, your husband, your children. And we've sort of cut that out of the, of the gospel preaching such that now Jesus is really just the guy that gets us cars, cribs, and cash. And when we've gone to that deeply materialistic preaching of the gospel, it leads us to then say, I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do because ultimately if I just sow the right seed in the right ground, God will do all kinds of things. So watch this. If I sow the right seed in the right ground and God will give me a healing, even though I don't change my diet, if I sow the right seed in the right ground 
and God changes my address, even though I'm not good with my credit, then surely God can, if I sow in the right ground, the right seed, save me and my whole family, even if we never repent, even if we never accept the gospel. And so that's a dangerous doctrine of demons that we've got to interrogate. And I think Pearson is right to say there is a logical conclusion to that that needs to be dealt with. And we need theologians and apologists and others saying, this is the way we need to deal with this. Lastly, I would say, all that said, I don't want people going away thinking that every Pentecostal believes that. And so uh, there were, you know, classical Pentecostals in the Church of God in Christ who long denied the word of faith as even being righteous and, and sound doctrine. Uh, and so I say that because there are a lot of people maybe listening and watching who are from white evangelical spaces or upper middle class black spaces to say the real problem is all these tongue talking folk. No, 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 no. Let's back up. Let's interrogate that. That's not really the issue. Right? The issue, because there's something that the Pentecostals did recover that many black Christians and white Christians alike lost as we became more respectable. But every tradition needs to be interrogated, even our own. And I think if we do that, we can present a more theologically and logically consistent message uh, that anticipates the objections, but also grounds it more deeply in the canonical scriptures and in conversation with the global church and church history in particular, so that we're not out here teaching some strange new gospel that's anathema. Mm -hmm. And if you need examples of, of Pentecostals that uh, are uh, in doing the things that you suggested and are uh, reading the scriptures and rightly dividing the word. I believe that there are two examples on this conversation. Um, right. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've had uh, Pentecostal scholars. Uh, we had um, Dr. David Daniels yes. uh, that many people love. Uh, his work on early Christianity. He's a Kojic bishop. Uh, we've had... Um, I can't think of his name. It's just escaped me. But we've had an, another scholar, uh, Antipas. We've had Antipas. Yeah. Um, so people are thinking critically um, that are in Pentecostalism and were raised in Pentecostalism. There are sects like you're, you're speaking of that are in error that we, we have to, you know, put them to task. But also things that I think are important. And when I talk to Pentecostal leaders, the overemphasis, and this is probably where Carlson Pearson probably when you talked about him speaking in tongues and prophesying probably is still having impact because in some circles people equate um spiritual interaction or you know that feeling of the spirit um to as a verification of something being true wow. or, or valid and i remember reading in the book in seminary and the guy was talking about how his experience he asked god to show him what truth was. And he said he began um, feeling a fire and in him and had like his hair standing up and it, it felt like the overwhelming sense of the spirit. And I'm thinking, oh, he must have been at a revival. Um, but no, he was at Brigham Young. And he said when he felt that he knew Joseph Smith was a true prophet. Because mm -hmm. Mormons also say that they have, they know that the truth is uh, Mormonism because of the 
the sensation that they describe as like a Pentecostal, it sounds like a Pentecostal revival. Yeah. So if we if we use those things, if we use feeling to for us to be the guide to truth, we will find ourselves sometimes in error because yes, God does allow us to feel him. But I believe that the enemy can can produce those those right. same feelings. So if you're going by that, if you're saying, "Oh, he could he could prophesy," or "Oh, he can he could when he lays hands, I feel something," or when he comes in the room, I feel something. If that's how you measure truth, you could be easily deceived. That's right. Well, let me uh, I'll speak to that, but let me give a name for those who who may want to research more on the width and breadth of Pentecostalism. Amos Young, Y-O-N-G, has written a number of books. One of them is uh, The Spirit Poured Out Upon All Flesh. I think this is the name of the title. And uh, it's a great survey of global Pentecostalism, global Pentecostal theology. So uh, it gives a, a width and breadth to, to the tradition. And so anything that Amos Young has written has been profound. Um, and, uh, and so I would encourage uh, your, your watchers and listeners to, to take a look at that. Um, <clears throat> yes. And to your point, I think, the, I think what we run into, into danger is when we basically idolize one means of encountering God. Um, and, 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 you know, by that, I mean, if you go f so far in the experiential camp and it's all about subjective experience then, I mean, you can basically call anything true. Uh, you know, one of the things that people joke about is to say, you know, there's the difference between the Holy Ghost and Casper the Ghost. You know? <laughs> or you say, I feel the spirit. Well, you know, there's the Holy Spirit and there's the spirit of P-Funk, right? So just because <laughs> you feel something doesn't mean that that is God. It could just be great music. It could be, you know, not to say that God isn't in music, but but just because you feel something doesn't mean that. And to your point about Mormonism, too, one of the things I think we have to do a better job of as well is interrogating the experiential theologies piece, because as much as I think that experience is important, Mormonism basically holds to some of the same tenets about the perpetuity of the gifts of the spirit. They believe in tongues and healing, et cetera. And so do those gifts, you know, for, so A, do those gifts alone validate, corroborate the that the God of scripture is moving in a particular place. Clearly we know in other uh, non-Christian uh, religious traditions that people had um, ecstatic utterances. Am I saying that that means that tongues are invalid today? No, but I'm saying that tongues alone can't be the proof. Uh, one of the things I think your work is so notable in this is that's why we have to rightly discern, rightly divide the word of truth. And so, as much as I believe that you can pray, you know, uh, you know, you feel something moving in you. Uh, you also need to know how to distinguish, to know to try the spirit by by the spirit, and 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 to know how to judge and weigh prophecies. You know, Paul says, "Don't despise prophecies, but need to weigh them." There's the even even in the if you will the charismatic community of the first century church, there's still ways of saying this is. God, and this is not. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the way he begins it. He says, so that you won't be ignorant about spiritual gifts or spiritual things or spiritual people. And he starts talking about how to distinguish between the spirit of God and the dumb idols. 
because in Corinthian culture, they you know they had experiences. They said were from the gods. They were possessed by the spirit of Hermes or Athena. So just because there's possession, just because there's I feel something moving, Paul says, doesn't qualify that. If you hear or feel anything that makes you say Jesus is not Lord, then that's not the spirit of God. And so, you know, even though Pearson did a lot of those things, you know, I was like, yeah, bro, but you still, you, you, you in a different camp than I am. So, you know, uh, <laughs> tongues alone, uh, you know, people can be in a seance. Just because you're in a seance and people are talking about, you know, I hear grandmama speaking to me doesn't mean that's God. And, and so we have to interrogate that more, uh, both in the Pentecostal communities, but and you know, charismatic communities, but also in, you know, say reformed, hyper intellectual traditions. They have made in many ways a God of intelligence, a God of language. And so we have to say, look, all this head knowledge without any heart knowledge is also dangerous because much learning can make you mad. And so it's the balance to borrow from the Wesleyan tradition. We've got to have scripture at the very top of that. And at the same time, look at tradition, look at uh, reason, uh, look at experience. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we got to go back to scripture as the plumb line, as, as, as the rule of faith, as the means by which we experience fundamentally the truth of God, that we encounter the truth of God, that our experience may corroborate, but ultimately the scriptures are our test and seal. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know this interview went longer than I anticipated. Do you have time to answer one more question? I don't want to, I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, for those, I don't want them to leave and, and feel like they haven't got a real full grasp of what uh, Dr. Pilsen is talking. I believe that we really thoughtfully went through the nuances of this whole thing, uh, because I think it's important not to just say, let's go and talk about Pearson and talk about inclusion and orthodoxy, and that's it, uh, without talking about the layers that, that went into that. So I'm, I'm thankful that we did that. Uh, yeah. For those who are watching and still are kind of unfamiliar with, with the doctrine of inclusion, can you talk about what it is and how it differs from orthodoxy? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. So basically, in a word, the gospel of inclusion is universalism. It is, it is, is a Christ-centered universalism. It, is, it basically, as, as Pearson has taught it, says that Jesus Christ provided salvation, redemption, liberation for the whole of humanity. And where it differs from orthodoxy is that, generally speaking, orthodoxy has stated that one must accept the free grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 10, for instance, confessing with our mouths, believing in our hearts that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is Lord. What Pearson and others would say is there is no need for confession. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for regeneration, justification, sanctification is already done. Therefore, there is no hell, or if there is a hell, hell is and will be empty. All of us will experience, and they use different language, go to heaven, be united with the one spirit. Um, is, you know, Pearson has used a lot of different language now, taken from word of um, 
I'm sorry, the New Thought movements and, and other groups. But basically, all of us will be reunited with cosmic intelligence. <laughs> That's one way he, he'll say it. And therefore, um, the idea of hell or judgment is more of a human thing that we've mapped upon God. God is love and God will not judge ultimately. So that's really it in a nutshell. And uh, there are a number of other things he talks about, you know, the fact that the reason why he comes to that is the word of faith piece, but also uh, that God is not Christian. Therefore, uh, it speaks to a kind of pluralism that, that God can speak to people in a variety of religions and religious traditions. Uh, it also speaks to the fact that there are millions and not billions of people who will never hear the gospel, that God would be unjust to condemn them to hell for not hearing the gospel. Uh, a third piece is persons who live various kinds of lifestyles that the church has historically deemed uh, sinful, um, sexual uh, perversion or whatever, bigamy, whatever you're talking about. He says all of that will ultimately, if you will, be washed away in the blood and there will be no distinction between, quote unquote, the saints and the ain'ts. Uh, to borrow his language, and all will ultimately go to heaven or cosmic intelligence or the universe or whatever term he may be using at the present moment. How that is particularly concerning and dangerous is that it takes away the necessity for a holy life, the incentive for living with respect, hospitality, moral conformity to the gospel, because if all of it's already done and I'm going to go to heaven anyway, I can do whatever I want to. I can go ahead and kill folk, rape folk, whatever. I can bomb millions of Jews. I can do whatever I want to because ultimately I will in the end uh, go to heaven. Now, Pearson would push back and say that because we all will go to heaven and be reunited with this cosmic love, we ought to therefore live in loving ways now. And so he does kind of provide an out to say, he's not saying that people should just go out shooting and killing everybody, that there is some kind of moral mandate. It's, it's akin to atheists who say, just because there is no God, that doesn't mean there are no moral standards. And Pearson would, would in some ways um, buy into that. Uh, so that is basically what Pearson is teaching in a nut in a nutshell um, you can you can read uh, it in his in his book uh, where he talks about it the gospel of inclusion uh, is, is the title of the book and he basically uh, goes into detail uh, let me read actually something that that Pearson himself wrote I want to say it in his own words he said the gospel of inclusion is the exciting and liberating news that in the finished work of the cross Jesus redeemed the entire world to God from the cosmic and organic sin imposed upon it by Adam, the original man. In effect, the world is already saved. They just don't know it. And unfortunately, most Christians don't believe it. 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10 says, We have put our trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially those who believe. Jesus did not die for Christians. He died to redeem reconciled and ultimately save the cosmos end quote so where why is it important that we understand the importance of repentance in this uh because i think this really <laughs> goes at you know the necess necessity of repentance right. um, um 
in in Carlton Pearson because he's saying that there's no, which is it's a side note. I think it's interesting that um, that a lot of people that embrace um, universalism are big on justice, hmm. and I think it's it's that's always an interesting point to yeah. me because it's like I think of as as African Americans the things we did. Uh, the things we've experienced at the hands of uh, white supremacies, white supremacists, KKK, um, and to think that there's no consequence for those things yeah. um, over hundreds and hundreds of years that we all just, it's all washed in the blood and, you know, we're all going to just get to heaven anyhow. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting that people that really have a strong view of justice and saying that God is just and he's calling for justice, that there's no consequence for the people who are unrepentant and do evils to us as African-Americans. I think that's that's yeah. very interesting. Well, to distinguish a little bit, though, I don't know if those particular persons would altogether agree with Pearson. Some would, but some wouldn't. They do believe that there should be judgment but for certain groups of people, right? So Hitler should experience something. Um, what Pearson would, I think, say, and I don't know if this would be um, accurate necessarily, but I think it flows in his doctrine, what makes Hitler's sin greater than my own? That if all sin is sin, and all of us have sinned, we are the ones who make a measurement of greater or lesser sin. Um, but he would argue that Hitler is no less worthy of receiving forgiveness than the person who cheats on his spouse. And um, now, you know, and so, but, but to your point, if you do follow Pearson all the way, the question, and you raise a great point, is why fight for, I mean, if, if justice is a category of righting wrongs, then isn't judgment the ultimate kind of justice? Because all Human justice is temporal and limited and, and in some ways insufficient. Um, so would it not be appropriate to say that God's justice, ultimate justice, is the ultimate when all of our justice is the approximation? None of our justice is ultimate. God's justice is ultimate. So we ought to believe that God will judge the living and the dead because ultimately God will sort out all of the stuff. He'll separate the sheep from the goats, uh, the wheat from the chaff, according to Matthew 25. And that there will be some sense of redemption. Um, now, to your earlier question about repentance, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is that believing in the doctrine of repentance is important if you've got sound hermeneutics. You know, Pearson <laughs> one verse, but it's like all the passages, you know, John the Baptist, Jesus, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> The finished work of the cross from this language of repentance. Uh, what must we do to be saved? Acts 2. Uh, repent and believe <laughs> on the gospel. Right? Yeah. Y'all good. You ain't got to do nothing. Jesus already did it. <laughs> you know, um, over and over again, there is there is this, this piece about repentance and then if you get to revelation you talk about the churches seven churches and many of them needing corrective action they need to repent um 
there is this sense of the purification of the, of the new world where sin and shame and sadness and disease, all these things be wiped away. Um, so, so there is this, this constant thing uh, of repentance in the New Testament that, that, if you will, picks up the theme of repentance from the Old Testament, to shuva, to turn, right? And, and so if there is no turning, if there is no turning from sin to life in Christ, if there's no turning from, from, from our will to God's will, it's not that that diminishes God's ability to save. It's simply that's the way God ordered salvation. He said, I've done it, but as free agents, you know, and I, you know, this may bother some unreformed folk, but here it is. Uh, as free agents, I give you the agency to accept or reject this free offer. Behold, I knock at the door, you know, but you've got to open the door. Um, and, and, and so I think there is something to be said about how we accept that. Because he, here's the other side of this, right? What if I don't want to accept Jesus's saving grace? Isn't the gospel of inclusion unfair to those who say, I don't want to be in Christ. I don't want to embrace what he did. I don't care. And it, and it seems that there's something wrong with universalism and pluralism that doesn't attend to the fact there are people who harden their hearts and say, I want nothing to do with Jesus, Christ, God, whatever. I am my own free agent. I want to be stardust at the end of, uh, end of, my, of my life. Uh, so, so there is the biblical warrant for repentance. There's, a, you know, there's profound evidence on every page, pretty much of the New Testament, of repentance, of turning away, and for sanctification. Not just justification by faith, but sanctification by the Spirit. That we ought to bear fruit worthy of repentance. That we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if we take away all of that, then we've really gutted the gospel from anything that's really good news for those of us who want to be transformed uh, and you know, no longer uh, conforming to this world, but by the renewing of our minds are transformed day by day into the image of the Son who loved us, that he gave his life for us and died for us, that we might through him have access to the tree of life and have life more abundantly. Mm-hmm. So Pearson, it's interesting because while he, I, I believe that he would, he would be classified as an Arminian before he went to yeah. inclusion, uh, that he has a sense of irresistible grace mm. um, <laughs> in, in, his, in his thoughts about universalism. Because it, in a sense, and I hope people understand what I say when I say this, universalism is kind of what the whole concept of tulip could be just to mm. everyone. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that's, no, that's good. Now you raised, I was actually having this conversation. <laughs> so you're and right. well, if, if people don't know what we're talking about, tulip, the, the uh, five points of Calvinism. That's right. Um, and one is, is irresistible grace. That's right. And, and, and so I was talking to a friend of mine, a student of mine, about sort of what's the attribute of God that is most amplified in various traditions, Reformed and Arminian traditions in particular. God's sovereignty is amplified in Reformed doctrine, and most Reformed people would believe in a single predestinationist doctrine that says God is already, before the foundation of the world, foreordained who would be saved. Well, most people who hear that hear also implicit a double predestination. Right. Meaning 
if God has already ordained those who would be saved, God has also ordained those who will not be saved. Therefore, it means that God has created millions of people to go to hell. What kind of God is that? that so that's so that's and so if you hear Pearson, he's kind of wrestling with the ways in which a particular kind of reform doctrine could could be used. And so he says, well, if God's grace is so irresistible for the elect, then could we, in the words of Karl Barth, see God, or Barth rather, as in Christ being the elected one, right? So it's not so much that there's this population of people who get elected, but that Jesus Christ is the elect and all humanity in Christ have experienced the irresistible grace from the cross and have been wooed, drawn into the saving grace, thereby universally all have been saved, all will be saved, nothing will be lost. And, and so to some degree, the gospel of inclusion is the pendulum swing in revolt of a kind of reformed doctrine that seems to suggest that God is this cruel tyrant who creates certain people for hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't think people have really thought about that or wrestled I'm with it. Get all kind of hate mail from the reform folk. And I don't want to oversimplify reform theology. I'm not reformed myself, but I don't want to oversimplify, um, oversimplify it. But in the sense of just looking at, you know, how Pearson is thinking about irresistible grace and sure. how he's thinking about salvation and the atonement. I think, you know, those are things that, you know, questions that people are going to be asking. And I think this is another reason why apologetics is important, because you have to be able to give a defense for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. So we're advocating for you as your members watch this and they they are watching it because it's on Netflix. And and one of the things that Carlton was a brilliant at is if he wanted to get his message to the masses, he understood where the masses were. Mm, Oftentimes, wow. we don't understand where the masses are because we're so in our bubbles. And honestly, he understands the times because when he first went and shifted this way, people were very close off to this idea. But as culture has progressed, he understands that this is going to be more culturally friendly. Yeah. He was, then he's done the Today Show. Um, people have been talking black and white, saying, man, this is a message of a loving God. And if we're going to be defenders of the faith, we have to be able to intellectually defend the claims that Carlton is making, but also with gentleness and respect. Because if he's winning them because of loving gentleness and respect, we're not going to win them back by being hateful and malicious in our presentation. Yeah, um, and, yeah, and, and, and again, there, there are these confluent elements there. There is the intellectual piece that, that, that's there. There's also the, again, the, the friendliness, the down-to-earthness. Here's this bishop who's just down-to-earth and he's just lovingly engaging people. And, 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 you know, and so if you've got 20 bodyguards called armor bearers and nobody could come to you and touch you and shake your hand, uh, if you're too good to engage people, then a Pearson becomes an attractive person because he is down to earth and friendly. But to your point, what's amazing, the other point, what's amazing is that Pearson has been preaching this about 20 years now. I mean, he starts in the mid-90s and he stayed the course because interestingly, and he's saying, of course, and he's really kind of created his own niche 
because after all the stuff happened in Tulsa, he started New Dimensions, but then he, he was going to become the succeeding pastor at, oh goodness, what's the name of the church? Christ Universal Church in Chicago, which was a, a, a Christian New Thought Church uh, pastor. Man, I forget her name. But he was too Pentecostal for them. So they were like, nah, we, we good. But he stayed the course. And what he's been doing, to your point, he's been building an audience through YouTube and through Facebook. And every day or every week, he's just constantly coming on. And he's and so you go, if you, you know, in, in your timeline, you see Carlton Pearson pop up with a live uh, video. And he's already got, you know, the little eyeball says he's got like 2,000 people watching him. That's not the folk in the replay. But he's been staying on the course for 20 years to do that. And I think it speaks to the fact that so many of us give up too soon. You know, when we're responding to these things, you know, as soon as we feel like we're shut down, we, we, we go away in our closet, in our corner. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, love what you've done. Have you just constantly been at it, building it, building it, building it, raising the profile so that it becomes a part of the, the more sort of social media conversation? And it's important then if if many of the people, this is a whole, whole other conversation, if many of the people that we want to reach are not in our congregations and hearing us from the pulpits, we've got to see Facebook and YouTube and Google Hangout as our extensions of our pulpits. Because Pearson understands I'm reaching people where they are. They're not going to come to my church. But he creates a kind of social media congregation that that readily and willingly listens to his voice. And they're going to do that even more, I think, after the Netflix video um, uh, uh, movie. So we've got to begin to think, especially more traditional churches, how do we make best use of social media, not by tearing each other down, but by trying to build up platforms where we can engage people who are dealing with and wrestling with all kinds of things. And lastly, we got to stop thinking that our people don't want to hear this. Because, you know, we, we kind of have this fluffy stuff that we do a lot of times. And we're not saying, let's, let's help them understand systematic theology. It's not that, it's deep, but it's not that deep. And it's deep <laughs> enough for them to be wanting to know more about it as they're engaging a person like Pearson, who's wrestling out loud about things they've wrestled with. Like, yeah, how could a loving God send somebody from some tribe that never heard the gospel to hell? That's a legitimate question that many people have already answered, but we, you know, her people in our congregations have read missiologists who are wrestling with these questions, or uh, uh, church historians who look back to the church fathers and how they uh, defended the doctrine of hell, but in a way that demonstrates God's love as much as it does God's justice. And I think the more we do that, the better we can at least prepare our people to engage in these dialogues so that they don't feel like, you know what, I've been lied to my whole life. Yeah, and realize this is not new amongst even African scholars. You got Origen um, right. um, who, who wrestled with this and ended up a universalist um, in, his, in, his, in his thought. And he was an African church father. So people have wrestled with this for years. Carlton Pearson's doctrine of inclusion is not new. And the church... Orthodoxy has survived even when yeah. uh, people have throughout the years. So this will come and go uh, just like it has came and gone and resurfaced all over again. Um, something that I want to add that I think is so important for, and we're going to go uh, soon, is that give 
your millennials, give your Gen Zs, give your baby boomers. People are wrestling with this silently. Mm -hmm. And when they come to you, make sure you have the posture of mercy and grace and also share your own struggles. I remember in seminary struggling with, you know, a loving God and, and all of that and why innocent children being murdered and God not stepping in. And I went to my professor and I'm really wrestling. And he said, Lisa, sometimes I, I'm wrestling with that myself. And that was what I needed. I didn't need him to give me five points. I needed him right. to say, I'm wrestling too. And so give people that space to wrestle and let them know that sometimes you're wrestling with it too. Do you have any closing remarks? Uh, how can people get in contact with you on social media? Also, well, thank you so much for, for the interview. And I've enjoyed talking with you and talking about Pearson, who... Um, uh, though I don't agree with this doctrine, I do respect uh, what he's contributed to the to the body of Christ uh, in his uh, previous <laughs> uh, iteration. Um, they can look me up on Facebook at CJ Rhodes, D-Men, D-M-I-N. They can find me on Twitter at Rev Rhodes. Uh, those are the two spaces where I'm most frequent. And I would love to engage people in dialogue on those two platforms. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.